0: Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. You see, long before Aristotle in the 400 BC was even examining the nature of wisdom, God revealed to his king, a guy called Solomon, about wisdom. From Proverbs 9 and verse 10, God says the fear of the Lord, that's Him, is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One, one is insight. You see, worshipping God rather than ourselves or anything else is the key to wisdom and insight. But that's not to say that we can't or shouldn't look anywhere else. Uh, interestingly, I'm not sure if you know, the great reformer John Calvin, he famously starts his Institutes of the Christian Religion in this way. He says, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Knowing ourselves is necessary, but it must be explored and in fact it can only truly be attained when considered in relation to God. And so a little bit further on, Calvin writes, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and, com- and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. I'm not sure why we got a bit stretched out, but we did. You see what he's saying? You cannot truly know yourself without knowing the God who made you. The God who even made you in his own image. The place where we look to God is as he's revealed himself to us, as he speaks to us through the pages of the Bible that we have such great access to. And as we read these words, God reveals who you are, who I am. So are you ready to hear who God says we truly are? Uh, Now, if you're new with us, you might find it a bit strange that we've leapt into this chapter in a, a letter. But basically, we're reading a letter that one of God's authorized representatives wrote to a young church in this place called Corinth. Interestingly, just across the water from that place, Delphi, where the temple to Apollo was. You see, this letter was written in about the 50s AD. It's a time when that temple was still standing, when people would gather there to know themselves. This was the, well, the context that the letter was written in, and it's the context that we find ourselves in. But strangely, this chapter, I'm not sure if you noticed, is about how the Corinthians didn't know themselves as they should have. And perhaps how we don't know ourselves either. Six times in this chapter, there's this phrase, Paul asks rhetorically, do you not know? There's this kind of repeated expectation that they should know what is right, but they've forgotten it or they've missed it. Basically, I think they clump together. The first three are about knowing what is right, and the second three are about knowing your bodies. So if you've got a Bible open, that would be great to point to, don't you know what is right? And the presenting issue is described in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Uh, this continues on from the end of chapter 5. That's kind of the way letters work. Chapter 6 follows chapter 5. But if you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, chapter 5 ended with the kind of rebuke that they were you know, struggling to discern what was right and wrong amongst God's people. Now it seems they're struggling to judge or decide these internal conflicts. And Paul says the courts aren't the answer. Now this isn't a a blanket condemnation of lawyers if you're studying law or of the judicial system as a whole. You know, there are times when the courts are necessary. Where the judicial system is a good provision to restrain and to deal with evil. But in the Corinthian situation, and I'm going to suggest it extends to us too, well beyond their context, the Christian brothers and sisters, well, they were uniquely qualified to deal with disputes amongst their own brothers and sisters. So if we unpack this together, the first two do you not know phrases, they're there in verses 2 and 3. Have a look, Paul's reminding them and us that Christians actually have a significant judicial role, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you will judge angels so that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? You may recall that the saints, we've seen it a few times in this letter, it doesn't refer to some elite class of Christians. It's all of God's people. And so that means if you're a Christian, Do you know that you're going to judge the world? Even judge angels? If you've been with us for a few weeks, that probably sounds a little unexpected. Chapter 5 ended with Paul saying that Christians shouldn't judge people outside the church. So, what's going on? Well, just like a good joke, the key is timing. Chapter 5 describes what happens now. We shouldn't expect those who reject the Lord Jesus to follow His ways even if that would be really good for them. But now chapter 6 describes the future, the time when Christ will return, the dead will be raised, and the whole world will be judged based on how they've responded to God and His revelation of Himself. And we even read in 2 Peter 2 and Jude that on that day the rebellious angels are going to be judged. They're being kept in chains until that final day when justice will fall. This is the future day when all Christians are going to judge the world and angels. And so Paul says, if this judgment has been entrusted to us, well, it should be no problem for us to deal with some minor disputes amongst God's people now. The logic seems to hold. My question is, well, how should they and how should we have known that we're going to judge the world? Did you know that? Here's a chance for you to say hi to those around you, Uh, a fun question for you to ponder. If you're stuck, try Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 22, just skim through quickly. But how are we supposed to know that we're going to judge the world? Enjoy a quick chat. All right, friends, I know it's not enough time, but why don't we work through it together? We'll see what we come up with. Uh, Daniel, if you're not aware, Daniel was one of God's people who was captured by the Babylonians he was carried into exile in Babylon in 605 BC. During his time in Babylon, God gave him some incredible visions of what was going to happen. And one of those visions God gave him was about great beasts devouring and conquering. That's what you just read about and skimmed through in Daniel chapter 7. In the midst of this God's throne room, it's throne his place. Have a look. So uh, from chapter 7 and verse 10, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed And the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. It's a pretty impressive scene. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. It's a pretty majestic scene of God's judgment in the midst of some pretty impressive chaos. Then the great beast was killed and the power of the other beast was vanquished. No opposition, no conquest. God rules. Then, one like a son of man approaches, and he's given dominion over all the earth. So from verse 13, I saw in the night visions of behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages, that's everybody on the earth, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You see, this is the majestic vision of a human being given power and authority to rule the world for all time. A a prophecy, a promise, a vision that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, who is God's King and Christ. But when Daniel asks what this vision means, he gets told something really interesting. Uh, Verse 17, these four great beasts that he just saw being destroyed or the power taken away, they are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But who is it who's going to receive the kingdom? It was the Son of Man just a moment ago. But now we're told it's the saints of the Most High who shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. You see, the interpretation is that this human who receives the eternal rule and dominion over all of creation actually represents all of God's people. The Son of Man is a representative for all the saints. And so the future for all of God's people is to reign with Christ over all of God's creation. And part of expressing that rule over God's world includes being involved in God's judgment of the world. And so as Daniel kept looking, he saw the horn of the beast, of this great beast. Well, what is he doing? He made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. You see, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you are united with Him. That's what we remember at Easter. You are saved by being united with Him such that His death represented your death and His resurrection gives you hope. That's the Christian gospel. But it wasn't just what happened at Easter. It's about what's going to happen in the future as well. As Christ will return to judge and to reign, we are all caught up in that judgment and reigning. And so Paul can say, don't you know that we're going to judge the world and angels? And because we're going to do that judgment, Paul says we should be prepared to deal with conflict amongst God's people now. So, with that majestic future, do you feel prepared to deal with conflicts amongst your Christian brothers and sisters? Well, if perhaps you don't, I wonder if Paul trains us in that as we keep on reading. Uh, It starts off with a pretty strong, even hard word against the Corinthians. Have a look in verse 5. Paul says, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, if you've been with us for the term, you know wisdoms a pretty loaded and significant term in this letter. I mean, firstly, wisdom should remind us of the gospel message that we worship the crucified Christ. Uh, So back in chapter 1 and verse 22, have a read. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Knowing the wisdom of Christ crucified, it actually provides the first solution to their unrighteous disputes. And so in chapter 6 and verse 7, how does that message get applied? Well, Paul says to have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You see, the way of the cross is to prefer suffering for another's wrong rather than to demand your own rights. This wisdom should characterize all of God's people. It's better to be wrong than to drag a brother or sister before the courts. And such an attitude the attitude of the Lord Jesus, the wisdom of the cross, that's going to avoid so much of the need for litigation. But a second aspect of wisdom also helps Christians resolve their conflicts. Chapter 2 tells us that God's people actually do receive and teach a profound spiritual wisdom. And so in chapter 2 and verse 11 we read, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And what do we do with those things freely given us by God? By His Spirit? Well, they're pretty valuable for judgment. Chapter 2 and verse 15, we read, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Why? For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You see, as Christians, we're equipped to judge and to resolve Christian conflicts because God has spoken. We have His Spirit. He has revealed His will to us. We're not imposing an arbitrary morality or an arbitrary judgment. Instead, we we shine God's light on the situation. We open God's Word and bring it to bear on the situation. After all, what other truth are we seeking to enact when we bring about God's judgment? So the question is, do we know God's Word and are we willing to submit to Him? Because it seems like the Corinthians were struggling with this. I mean, we're told in verse 8 that instead of being willing to suffer wrong, they were doing wrong. Instead of being willing to be defrauded, they're defrauding their own brothers and sisters. And so Paul appeals to them with a third reminder in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And if they or we are struggling to remember what righteous behavior is fitting for the people of God, Paul continues, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see how God's gospel word, gospel wisdom, it gives us all that we need to deal with Christian conflict? Like Christ, we should be willing to suffer rather than demand rights. And with the Spirit of God, we have the wisdom to not just know what is right, but to decide what is right. So if you're a Christian, do you know who you are? You're a judge. And that means that you have responsibility to uphold and to live out what God says is right. Not just for yourself, but in community with God's people. But again, maybe in living this out, the Corinthians have forgotten some pretty important truths about who they are. So we're at point three, don't you know about your bodies? As we read through this letter, it can sound a bit like Paul's just addressing issue after issue for these Corinthian saints. Verse 12 seems to bring up another one. They they seem to have this principle of freedom that they're living out. All things are lawful for me. And if you're a Christian, you may well agree with that principle. I mean, after all the requirements of the law have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we are no longer under law, but under, under grace. But Paul then adds some pretty significant qualifications. Only do what is helpful. Uh, only do what doesn't harm or, or hinder that freedom. But then he goes on to talk about food and stomachs in verse 13. question for you to ponder and to consider together, uh, what does freedom have to do with food and stomachs? Verses 12 and 13, enjoy a chat. Alright friends, let's come back together. Now it's week nine. I'm keen to hear some of your answers. What do you reckon? What's the connection between food and stomachs and this freedom? Any thoughts? Yeah, freedom, say anything. Someone. Food can put you in bondage to man-made traditions. Food can put you in bondage to man-made traditions. Thank you. Other thoughts. that there's some things that should go together and other things that shouldn't. Thanks. Keep on reading. I think that's really helpful. Any other thoughts? I think we're going to come to Selwyn's one in a couple of chapters. I reckon Sam's really helpful to point ahead as we keep on reading. This parallel comes out quite clearly. You see, some things are made to go together, like food in your stomach. But the parallel is really significant. It's your body and the Lord... And they go together. It's pretty profound, isn't it? The body, this, this flesh and blood, some of us take a bit too much pride in our bodies, others struggle to accept the bodies God's given us, but it belongs with Jesus. And perhaps even more shockingly, the Lord Jesus belongs with our body. But the comparison also shows us, as Sam healthfully said, something shouldn't go together. Interestingly, you need to teach young children that what isn't food doesn't belong in their stomachs. a so joy of babies is fishing all kinds of leaves or grass or sand or anything they can get their hands on out of their mouths if it's not food. But where this hits home for the Corinthians and perhaps for us is that our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality. Unlike what some suggest, sex is not just another bodily appetite to be fulfilled however we like. There are right and wrong ways to express our sexual, our sexual nature. Some are good. We're going to see more about that next week in 1 Corinthians 7. Some are wrong and they're harmful. And they're not what our bodies are made for. But these parallel statements also highlight something about the future. Feeding our stomach is good for a time, but should the Lord Jesus delay His return, there's going to be a time when well, our stomachs don't eat any more food. Death brings an end to that. But that's not true for our bodies. Verse 14, what's the parallel? And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. You see, just as the Lord was raised, so will we be raised body and all. In fact, the bodily of resurrection of Jesus, it highlights as God's affirmation that what we do now with our bodies actually really matters. And while this is hopefully obvious, it means that Well, what you eat doesn't matter nearly as much as who you sleep with. Because of Jesus' resurrection, there's actually no room in Christianity for dividing up who we are as to a spirit and a body. Paul's exact point is that we are a spiritual unity. That's who we are. You are your body. That's how God has made you. And so your body will be raised like Jesus was raised. And your body is for the Lord And that's what you live for. Any attempt to try and divorce your true self from the flesh and blood that God has given you, well, it's a a sub-Christian view of who we are. It's not what the Bible teaches. This means that you matter and your body matters. And what you do with your body also matters. Off the back of this, Paul says there's three things that you need to know about your bodies and what you do with them. And in particular, it's how we think about sex that he draws out. So firstly, in verse 15, we've got one of these phrases, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Again, this profound reality of the Christian experience is that we are joined to Jesus like members of one human body. This means that whatever we do, we're not only representing Christ, but He's there with us. If you're a Christian, there's no part of your life or or no context or time when you're apart from Jesus, which is a great comfort but it's also a great warning when you want to go the other way. Your identity is so bound up in Jesus that you are permanently and pervasively connected to Him. And what you do affects more than just you. If you're driving irresponsibly with your mates, your body is actually part of Christ. When you go to the R-rated movie, your body is part of Christ. When you enter the nightclub, your body is part of Christ. When you're alone with your girlfriend, your body is part of Christ. Or to take Paul's example in verse 15, Shall I take then the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. The idea is utterly abhorrent. When you understand who you are, that must change what you do with your body. Because if you're a Christian, your body is a member of Jesus' body. 2nd and verse sixteen, we're reminded, or do you not know, again, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. Again, this is what we learned back in Genesis 2.24. This beautiful picture of marriage where one man and one woman are united together in marriage for life. The two will become one flesh. And while it's wonderful in marriage to join yourself to others who are not your wife in this way, or your husband, well, it is not an option for God's people. Because regardless of whether you're single or married, you're taken. That's what verse 17 is saying, isn't it? But he who is joined to the Lord, it's the same language, becomes one spirit with him. Uh, paralleling the, the union of flesh that sex creates, Paul says there's a profound spiritual union that believers have with Jesus by faith. We share in Christ's spirit and so we are united to Him. And now our deceptive hearts may hear this and think, okay, if it's sex that unites one man and one woman together, and if that's off limits to Christians, well, how far can I go in pursuing other forms of physical intimacy whilst avoiding sex? But did you notice in verse 18, Paul asks a different how far can you go question? He's thinking the opposite direction. How far can you go? Flee sexual immorality. I'm not sure if you've ever played the game down the beach we used to enjoy it with kids. Our kids enjoy it now. We kind of run down to the water's edge as the wave is coming. You try and run away before the wave catches you. The challenge is kind of how close can you get without getting wet? Sometimes this seems to be our attitude towards sexual immorality. How close can you get without crossing the line? But just like playing at the beach, you invariably get wet when you play that game. You cross boundaries that are unhelpful and sinful. They hurt you and they hurt others. Unlike the beach, the bedroom is no place to play the how close can you get game. Christians should not think about sex and purity in this way. Instead, it seems Paul says we should probably think something more like this when it comes to sexual immorality. Uh, Even if you're a dog person, if you see this fully grown German shepherd, teeth gnarled or growling, barking, running towards you, You don't go, how close can I get to pat this little puppy? You run the opposite direction. You flee. And Paul says that's the kind of how far you should have in mind when it comes to sexual immorality. If you know who you are as a Christian, Paul says this is the mindset we should have. But what might it look like? Uh, To reassure you, I don't think Paul actually thinks if you see or happen to be sitting next to someone of the opposite sex, you should flee right now. That's not the idea that he encourages. Uh, I wonder if instead it's helpful to think in terms of arousal or or even intent. Uh, Fleeing sexual immorality probably means it's going to be helpful for you to avoid things that cause sexual arousal or that seek to sexually arouse others. Now, this looks different for each person and each different context, so can I encourage you to be honest with yourself, uh, to ask serious questions of yourself. And some of those questions that might be helpful to consider is, do you need to change what kind of things you watch or listen to or scroll through because it arouses you sexually? Uh, We talked about porn a couple of weeks ago, that's definitely out, it's quite clear. But with the sexualization of all the media we consume, are there other things that would be more helpful for you to avoid out of purity? Or are there different contexts or situations which you find unhelpful? Perhaps even the gym or the pool or the beach or dancing or going out. And on. Are there different things that would be better for you to change the way you engage with them or to avoid for the sake of your purity? Even the stuff that you wear, whether it's a guy or a girl, that is going to actually help others to not be aroused around you? How can you be thoughtful of fleeing sexual immorality? Or if you're in a relationship, what boundaries will you set up around touch or physical intimacy uh, around the time that you spend together in order to protect each other and honour each other and honour the God whose body you're united to? And will you commit to never being alone in a private setting? Flee sexual immorality. Now I get that I sound more conservative than your grandma and probably more outdated than those cassette tapes that your parents have in the garage. But I'm okay with that. Because what God says is actually profoundly for our good and we will look weird and radically different from the world around us because God encourages us more than that. He commands us to flee sexual immorality while the world around us wants to flee towards it. Will you look weird and run the other way? Because along with being united to Christ, the other reason why Christians should flee sexual immorality comes in verse 18. Uh, Paul says that every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, what does that mean? You know, this is another chance we you to have a fun chat together. What do you reckon? Uh, what does verse 18 mean about sin outside or against his own body? Last chance, 30 seconds. Enjoy the chat. All right, friends, let's come together and finish things off. I was keen to hear some answers, but so you can go off and enjoy the next class, we'll plow on. Uh, it's interesting because all, all kinds of different sin affects our bodies in different ways, doesn't it? You get drunk, it has an effect on you. You're greedy and you eat too much food, it has an effect on you, as well as in countless other ways. I was talking with a friend the other day at church who was converted in later in life after heavy drinking and heavy drug usage. He goes, my body is bearing the scars of the life that I lived. See, so many sins affect our body. So what does Paul mean here? Well, I wonder if it's what he's just talked about in the particular way that sex joins us to others. It affects our bodies in such a profound and intimate way. And he says, your body, if you know yourself, you're connected to the Lord Jesus. You're not right or able or free to bind yourself to others in that way. Uh, the question, well, it's an interesting phrase, but Paul's point is clear, isn't it? This kind of behavior does not belong amongst God's people. And so that brings us to his third and final, do you not know statement. It comes down to verse 19 and it's a reminder about our bodies again. Do you not know that your, temple, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Again, it's another aspect of this deep and profound connection, this radical new identity for our bodies about how we are united with God. But here the the image seems to go even a little bit further. Uh, You may remember that for Israel, the temple was the place where God dwelt amongst His people. In chapter 3, a little while ago, we saw that in verse 16, Paul says that the church, when it comes together, is a temple of God's Spirit dwelling within them. But now that goes further still and says each individual believer... Their body is like a temple where God dwells in them by His Spirit. And that means that just in those other cases, what you do with your body really matters. What's the implication? Well, at the end of verse 20, we must glorify God in our bodies. That's the purpose of our life and God's Spirit dwelling within us. And that brings us to point four as we try and pull these threads together. Be yourself. As we've seen, there's this desire and a value in knowing ourselves, in knowing who we are. That's not some kind of detached inward quest to be done, but it's actually to be done in relation to God if we're going to truly know ourselves. He's the one who made us. He knows us better than we even know ourselves. But in this chapter, we've learned some pretty deep things about God's people. Things that you may have forgotten or may not have known. Firstly, we ought to know what is right, and that knowledge of what is right is found in the wisdom of the gospel and in God's Spirit-filled Word. We are going to share in Christ's judgment of the world, and so now we should be willing to deal with the disputes amongst God's people. Secondly, we need to know about our bodies, and this matter that we're made of, it really matters. It belongs with Jesus, and it's actually profoundly connected to Him a member of His body, united with His Spirit, even as a temple for glorifying Him. Now, knowing this about ourselves gives an incredible dignity and value to our lives and our bodies, but it's also got some pretty big implications for how we live, particularly with how we view and engage with sex. And... Well, there's some things which have been pretty clear, I know that we've gone pretty quickly over some big ideas. And so if we maybe slow down a little bit, I want to say about laser tag. I'm not sure if you enjoy laser tag. Uh, a few weeks ago, I got to go with, laser tag, uh, to, with my family for celebrating a friend's 8th birthday. We played some laser tag. It's kind of fun creeping around, shooting each other. Uh, but every now and then, you just kind of have your vest go off saying you've been shot and you've got no idea where it came from. Now, it's kind of inconsequential in the game, you wait 20 seconds, you get back into it. But it was a sobering reminder that if you're playing for keeps, you could be gone without really knowing about it. Now, when we read the Bible, don't think of it like laser tag. It's actually more like the live fire exercise. The goal is not to kill anyone, be very clear about that, the goal is not to kill anyone. But we're talking about real lives, real situations, real people. As we talk about these ideas, it's not some theoretical ideas for you to write notes about and to walk out of here. God is talking to us, and in a way that can be pretty deep and penetrating. When we're talking about the seriousness of sexual sin, they're not abstract or detached ideas. They're words that speak to me and what I have done, and I take it they speak to you and what you have done and perhaps even what you're doing or struggling with at the moment. I don't want us just to run along like we're playing laser tag, but we need to feel the gravity and the weight of what God is saying. It may well raise questions for us about feelings of guilt, of acceptance, of forgiveness, doubts about your place in God's kingdom. I mean, as we read through that list before, it might have felt like we're trying to play bingo as you kind of go, there's this and this and this that I'm struggling with. Do I belong here? What can I do about these things? Well, can I encourage you that God already knows about it and He's already done something about it. We skipped over verse 11 as we read through, but go back and have a look there now because just as Paul goes through this list of the behavior that does not belong amongst God's people, have a look at what he says. We need to hear his verdict as he is the chief judge. Some of you were these people. It was true for them, And I'm sure it is also true for us. But do you see the profound change? You were washed, cleansed of all that you've ever thought, said, done, or experienced. You were sanctified, that means made holy, fit for a relationship with God, made appropriate for His purposes, able to have God's Spirit dwelling within you. And you were justified, declared to be righteous, No longer with a cloud of sin and guilt over your head, but a clean slate. How does all this come about? Well, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the reality of the Christian life. If you've turned from your sin, if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you need to know who you truly are. You're washed clean. You're made holy. You are declared right all in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You belong here, and everything else has been dealt with, and that's who you truly are. You see the same truth? In the end of verse 19, you're not your own. you were bought with Christ, with a price. That wonderful and profound cleansing and transformation. it was free for us, but it cost Jesus his life. And so what is that left for us to do? Well, if you know yourself in Christ, just be yourself and glorify God. In your body but if you don't know Christ well you need to come and find yourself in him let's pray Heavenly Father thank you that you show us who we are apart from you uh, we are desperately in need of a saviour but as we come to you you wash us clean you make us holy you declare us right fit to relate to you and to enjoy the best life in your world Father, we pray that we may be who you made us to be and so glorify you in our bodies. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.